wait, 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 wait. This is my podcast, and I do introductions for a living. I don't need the big voice. Uh, I can handle it from here. Hit the music. Welcome back inside another edition of the Matt Fargo Show. I am Matt Fargo. Happy to have you along in another edition. Uh, glad you clicked on to this as we're starting to get a couple episodes deep now. And I've been having a blast doing this, getting to talk to so many different people about their careers, about their lives, their individual sport. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to go down a couple different paths. We're going to have some people on from the music industry and and kind of talk about life outside of the world of sports. It's going to be a sports podcast predominantly, but at the same time, I figure we're going to we're going to check things out from from different walks of life and maybe get some different perspectives. And I feel like we've done a pretty decent job of that. Again, I keep talking about we like there's a cast of thousands behind this uh, this effort. Um, I appreciate everyone who does help, but there's not many of them. Um, but I'm excited that we've been able to to have the guests that we've had on. I'm really excited for this guest today, uh, Susie McConnell Serio, a Olympic gold medalist, uh, one of the best basketball players of all time, as named by Sports Illustrated. Um, just really, she still has the NCAA record for assists that probably would have gotten broken this year had the season played out, but it did it and she still has it. And she talks about that. She goes into to detail more about her time in coaching and how difficult it is to recruit from the Atlantic 10 to the ACC when she finished at Pitt and being an assistant now um, under her husband at Upper St. Clair High School in Pittsburgh. So I think all really an interesting interview for sure. And I thought it came at a good time. You know, we had a lot of uh, hashtag girl dads with uh, the, the passing of Kobe Bryant and maybe that coming more to the forefront of how far women's sports has come. I know that I've been um, uh, an advocate and someone who has continued to promote women's athletics, both at the high school, the collegiate, and the professional ranks. I've handled all three. I've called some national championships with the Pittsburgh Passion and um, probably going to talk to Frank O'Harris and Teresa Kahn, the two owners on uh, the Pittsburgh Passion at some point. I know that I'd love to have both of them on to talk about the passion and Franco, we can uh, probably have four or five different podcasts to talk to him of all the things that he's involved in. But, um, you know, just to see how far women's athletics has come, but at the same time, knowing still how far we have to go. Susie does a great job at going inside, maybe a little bit beyond just talking about individual salaries that, they do not get the same kind of treatment on the women's side. And I think that's the, the gap we still need to bridge. That's the, that's the part that we haven't gotten to that we still need to get to. And um, especially the, the women's U.S. national soccer team, I think they're the exception to the rule in the sense that their ratings are better, better than the men's. More people want to see the women's team than they do the men's. And, you know, that there's a lot of reasons for that. I think, you know, men's soccer in the United States isn't as strong as it is in other countries. And 
I think that the NFL, specifically the NFL and the NBA, have done such a good job at marketing to this uh, this audience, this group, this like last decade and a half of people that you know. I really think that the MLS has taken a step back, and obviously, you know the the United States like likes winners, and if the U.S. men's team isn't going to win, they're not going to get the 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 TV ratings and the 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 jersey sales that they would if they were winning, um, and that goes for the women too. the The fact that they're having so so much success has a lot to do with the fact that the product on the field is winning, and that's a lot of what happens in sports most of the time. Is when you win, you have success, and you have success on all fronts of uh, of your franchise. There's very few places. There's very few teams that still continue to have success even when they don't succeed as far as the product on the field. But I say all that because I think that it is an important conversation to have. It's one that is needed. Um, it's one that I'm going to be proud of as far as being on this side of the of the aisle uh, when I can look back and say that we've come far, but we still have a far way to go. And we have more to come when we come back. It will be... Susie McConnell Serio joining me on the Matt Fargo Show. Stick around. Really exciting guest on the back half of this music break. first-ever first-team All-American in Penn State women's basketball history, the 2004 WNBA Coach of the Year, a two-time recipient of the Dapper Dan Sportswomen of the Year Award, a two-time Olympic gold medalist winning gold in 1988 and bronze in 92, and a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, Pittsburgh's own Susie McConnell-Serio joins me on the Matt Fargo Show. Susie, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Matt. Oh, I've been starting with uh, everyone I've had on recently with the obvious question, how is how is quarantine going? Oh, I'm surviving. <laughs> we uh, we actually have two of our uh, girls living at home with us. They're both nurses at Children's Hospital. Um, they've finished school and they're in their first year of um, being a nurse. So um, they're nurses. And then we have two children who are pharmacists. One lives in Pittsburgh area and one is a children's hospital in Philadelphia. So they're all out and about. And, uh, basically I just stay at home and, but I've, I've enjoyed having my children home and, um, gotten to do a lot more with them. Um, now that they're older. Well, appreciate uh, all of their essential work and talk about what baptism by fire first year in, in nursing and and having to deal with with something that's as unprecedented as this, that has to be an interesting situation. It really is. Um, just to, because, you know, I, we just don't know what they're exposed to. I, you know, we feel with being at Children's Hospital, uh, it's not as severe. Um, I know they, there have been parents that have tested positive uh, with their children being at Children's. Uh, my son is a pharmacist and it's a mail order pharmacy, so he's just exposed to coworkers. But, you know, still, you just don't know what they're exposed to. And, um, you know, I appreciate what they do. I'm proud of them. Um, and they just take it one day at a time. But they 
they are the ones that are adamant about us staying home, about my parents staying home, um, and just people being smart about what they do right now. Yeah, no question about it. And I think obviously it's affecting people at that that high level of the the at risk people, but it's also affecting everyone's just everyday life and affecting work. How has it affected you as far as that's concerned? Well, for me, um, as you know, I'm not I. I helped my husband coach at the high school level and our season had ended. Um, but my husband's a teacher. So now he is online every day with the students and um, he's working from home. And then my daughters are obviously still going to work. But um, for me, it, it's just not doing anything outside of the home um, per se you know, with just the necessities as far as just the grocery store. And um, I think I've only been in it once since this all has happened. You mentioned uh, your your time at Upper St. Clair's, the assistant. Now, uh, how's that? How how did that go in, in your first year going back to the high school level? Obviously, won three uh, state championships at Oakland Catholic, uh, but but going back down to to the high school level, how how was that going back? You know, I've coached at so many levels, and you know, I've always believed that coaching is coaching. Um, you know, it's just a different level of talent. But um, I, I truly enjoyed it, you know, working with my husband on a daily basis, just trying to help him be successful. And he had a really good group of players this year, good chemistry, um, a great team, great teammates. He had um, a really good young group. There, there are five freshmen that are going to be very, very special. And it was just fun to be back on the court, working them with them in practice every day. Um, being on the sideline, I will admit that it's a little different uh, being an assistant <laughs> than being a head coach um, because you make suggestions and uh, the head coach obviously doesn't necessarily have to um, go with everything you suggest. Um, but, you know, it's that's all I did is, is try to help him uh, be successful. So it was fun being back um, coaching again. Do you and Pete have a role on – like bringing basketball back into the house or, or like, you know, we're going to talk about it on the car ride home and then it's over. Is there, is there a line where it cuts off or are all bets are off? It could be talked about at any point. Oh, it basically basketball is almost 24 seven in our home. (laughs) Um, You know, when I was coaching college or WNBA and, you know, he was coaching high school, you know, we would constantly talk about basketball and, um, and now that we're coaching together, um, I, ne- I didn't realize I would be back watching film like I was. I mean, we would be watching film, um, to analyzing, talking about game planning, just everything. So, no, it was it was at home a lot as well, just because, um, you know, he was in school all day teaching. And so at nighttime is when we would talk about preparing for the next game and preparing our team. Where are you as far as if your team, if Upper St. Clair would have still been in the PIAA playoffs, what would you have said to your, to your girls, to the girls on, you know, their season essentially uh, being cut short? There were so many teams specifically in, in the basketball playoffs that their, their chances at a state championship were robbed. You got to experience that both as a coach and as a player. And talk about that experience and the fact that you know, unfortunately, especially for the seniors, they're not going to get to experience uh, playing in a state championship or even a, a state semifinal, which those are those can get as intense as well. Well, we had lost um, pr- prior to all of this happening. Um, 
but actually my brother Tim at Chartier's Valley uh, and my sister Kathy is the coach at Trinity. They were still alive in the playoffs. So, you know, I got to see it through them. Um, But I could just imagine how disappointing it is for all of the student athletes, those that didn't get to finish the winter sports, um, you know, to play for a championship and have that experience because uh, like, even as old as I am now, I remember uh, Whippeal championships and state championships and um, all of that, that went into high school sports. And um, those were such exciting times. And that's what these players were looking forward to having the opportunity to do. And unfortunately it was cut short, but you know, you look at, Uh, all that has been happening. And I I think everyone understands that this is something bigger than basketball, bigger than sports. When you look at what the NBA, um, the NHL, major league baseball, everything um, has been canceled. And so, you know, I, I, as important as you get to a 15, 16, 17 year old right now, as important as that is um, this is much bigger than, than basketball or any sport that you will ever play. Yeah, no question. And you mentioned all the professional sports leagues. If you were back in the WNBA and this happened during their season, how would you manage a professional team? You know, it's it's a little bit different managing student athletes because it is what it is and it's over and you kind of just move on with life. But when you're dealing with professionals, totally different ball game. How would you have handled this if this would have taken place when you were coaching and that's an interesting question because like what well, my nephew TJ's in the NBA and he basically has been quarantined in his apartment in Indianapolis. And then he came home for a week and I don't, I'm not, not sure he even left um, the home where he was staying. I don't know if he was, if he may have been at my brother's part of the time, but um, you know, so you look at what he's going through, but the WNBA, the season hasn't even started. Right. So these players a lot of them play overseas in the offseason. I know those seasons have been cut short, so a lot of the players have come back home. And, you know, whatever training they could do, you would hope that they would do the training on their own as far as conditioning. But, you know, there's where would they train? Where would they work out? Um, so I'm not really sure what the protocol would be for the WNBA if they're even planning on um, having a season, if they're shortening it. Um, I haven't read anything about it, but, I mean, obviously – you do what you can to stay in shape. And if you ever get the chance to get together, um, you've you really training camp would be very essential with that. And the regular seasons, all of those things being postponed, that's one thing, but the other, the other portion of this that has been obviously a big part of the news has been the Olympics being postponed an entire year. Now preparing for Olympics as you have, and now to, to basically have to reset the clock, how difficult would that be for an athlete to have to reset knowing that they were supposed to play just months from now and knowing now that they have to basically reset for another year? Well, I, it may depend on um, the athlete, the individual athlete in the sport um, in which they are training for, because there are individual athletes who have been training years to be a part of, of an Olympics and maybe they're at the peak of their career right now going into this Olympics. And this was their, their one shot that they would have. Um, So, you know, those athletes you feel very bad for that um, they're not going to have the opportunity to compete this summer. And hopefully they will have a chance a year from now that they can maintain it and, and be able to be um, at the top of their uh, sport as well. But, you know, you look at the the teams, like the basketball teams and, you know, the, like well, that's what I'm a part of. So when I think of how that 
team is selected, that that's just postponed a year. You wouldn't see there being many changes unless it's due to injury um, for a certain athlete to be a part of the Olympics. But um, again, I mean, that's just showing the severity of what this virus is doing because it is postponing um, Olympic competition, which encompasses every country. Um, in, in, in it's all eyes on the Olympics and it's every athlete's dream to be a part of. And it's such a special time. It comes around every four years. So, so for that to even be postponed, um, it, it's just the magnitude of that is just unbelievable. What are some of your, your fonder memories of, of winning gold in, in 1988 and take me, take me back to, to then and being able to accomplish that, that goal. You know, being a part of, an Olympic team um, is so special. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think I could say that when I was a little girl, it was my dream to be a part of the Olympics. Uh, you know, in 1980, it's when the U.S. there was a boycott, um, and then 1984, I was a senior in high school watching it, and I remember watching the Olympics and seeing them win the gold medal, and um, and and just thinking in my mind, boy how special that would be. And that that's amazing to be a part of that. I didn't even know what it would take or, um, you know, anything about that. And it was when I got in college that, you know, I learned more, I started playing for USA basketball in the summer. And so it was something that as each year had progressed and I played for USA basketball, it became a, a goal of mine to be on the Olympic team, never knowing that if it would ever come true because they take 12 players every Olympics. And so, um, you know, my senior year, um, I had the opportunity to try out for the Olympic team and it was a long summer. They did it so differently back then you had to try out through, and there were some injuries that they just kept trying to prolong the, um, selection of the team. And it ended up being in August and it was August 18th was the day I was told. And that was probably the best moment um, up until that point that I was told that I had made the Olympic team and I would be one of 12 players selected. So when, when you're on the Olympic team, I mean, it's just unbelievable. You're playing with the best of the best. You're, you know, traveling to different um, countries be prior to the Olympics and you're playing in exhibition games and you're training and you're playing against guys and you're doing all of this. And then you get to the Olympics and you're living in the village with all of the athletes from all over the world. Um, you know, you're competing, you're seeing other events, but, you know, competing in the Olympics and then finally in that gold medal game, winning the gold medal, uh, there was no greater feeling. I mean, it was unbelievable winning that game and then the medal ceremony, having, you know, your team march in, stand up on the top platform. You know, you're in your USA sweats. They place a gold medal around your neck. They play our national anthem. I mean, it was uh, it was a, a dream come true. It's something you wish every person could experience whether it's in the Olympics or something else but it was such an unbelievable feeling to represent your country and to come home with a gold medal was there a specific play or game that you remember more than than other I would assume the gold medal game would be memorable I, I just think at that time we were um, loaded with talent I mean we had some really really great players um, in the Olympics and um, it was just so fun to be a part of you know, and everybody played and everyone contributed. Um, but I would just have to say as the, the final seconds of the gold medal game uh, would probably be the most memorable because the anticipation of, you know, it's like when you're watching the clock go down and 
and, you know, you're just waiting for that final buzzer. And, you know, what you can imagine is obviously us storming the court and, um, and going crazy, just, you know, so excited that, you know, that we had accomplished our, our goal of winning the gold medal. You know, there's some people in Pittsburgh that say that winning WPIL gold is more important than winning USA gold in the Olympics. <laughs> some people would say that. Well, I mean, it's all relative to what your goals are, what your dreams are. You know, it's, um, you know, I, I'm not going to take away a gold medal in the in the whipple from everyone because that is a special moment when you watch those teams um, when they do win and how excited they get. I mean, that's maybe that's their Olympic gold moment that they have in their life. And it's something very special. So I would never take that away from a student athlete. Um, and the importance of well, that. I mean, I think that's it's a funny thing in the sense that for whatever reason, there's an aura around the WPL that even uh, surmounts states in a lot of ways. Do you do you agree with that? I mean, you're you're Pittsburgh it's, through and through, but do you do you think that's the case that that sometimes people really value WPIL over state? It's funny you say that because that conversation comes up so often uh, that people put so much emphasis on, on the winning the Whippeal championship, as opposed to the state championship. Um, I've heard that said so many times, but um, I, I know as a player um, how exciting it was. And maybe that is, you know, the, that at that time, it is the most important moment and maybe the highlight of someone's basketball career and season. Um, but for me, when I was coaching and when I was a player, um, the state tournament was, was just as important to me. Um, you know, I know people put so much emphasis on that, but when, when you can talk about either being the best of Western Pennsylvania or the best in the entire state, uh, we put equal emphasis on, on both. No, I think, and you know, one is it's like winning your section, you know, that's a part of the goals that you're trying to, to attain getting back to the, the Olympics for a second. Did you, once you came back, I, I experienced this from traveling with the Globetrotters. When you came back to the U.S., did you find yourself more cultured that you had to interact with different people from different countries for, you know, the, the sake of a few months? Did you did you feel more cultured? Did it change your perspective a little bit? Well, I think throughout my career, having been overseas so often, you know, prior to um, over the summer throughout my um, college career, I had played with USA basketball. So we were traveling to different countries throughout each of those summers. And um, as much as, I mean, I've enjoyed, you know, seeing different places, um, you know, seeing how they live, um, the, the foods that we have tasted, you know, just the, the entire cultural experience that you have overseas. But I think what it did for us is it gave you a great appreciation for what we have at home and how fortunate I was, um, you know, growing up here and, uh, and the opportunities that I've had. Um, but I mean, you definitely learn from the places that you've been and the experiences that you have, but um, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think it, you know, you definitely um, get an education, so to speak, when, when you're going overseas, um, you know, learning different, like hearing different languages and trying to communicate. There are just so many experiences that you have um, when you're in, if not even just in the Olympics, but, you know, traveling throughout the, the world. Coach to the WNBA, coach to collegiately Duquesne at Pitt, as we've noticed, uh, also at the high school level. Can you tell me which is the hardest to coach at? I, you know, if I had to, they're, they're all so different. 
um, because, you know, in high school, you're coaching young, impressionable student athletes. And I think you can really make an impact on them as um, teenagers. And then you're helping them try to get to where they want to be, you know, going on to college and play at the next level. And then you go to the college level where, you know, you're trying to get them to figure out what they want to do with the rest of their lives. You know, do they want to play in the WNBA? Do they want to go overseas? What what career are they going to choose? And then you play coach at the WNBA level, and it's it's really a business model. I mean, you're dealing with drafts, you're dealing with trades, um, free agency, you're dealing with agents of the, these these players, and it's the cream of the crop. I mean, you're talking about the best of the best that these players are all you know had had been the top player on their team, the top one or two players on their team. And then you're trying to get them to play together and, you know, build the chemistry. Um, They're trying to play overseas. So there's just a lot uh, going on at the professional level. Uh, But if I, you know, what would be the most challenging is probably the college level because you're dealing with recruiting. And when you're recruiting a student athlete, you're trying to convince them what, why, why should they pick your school? Why should they come play for you? Um, at, at that university and, you know, you're competing with the top programs in the country. I mean, you know, we would be in a kid in a player's top five, but we could be con- competing against Louisville, Notre Dame, Duke. You know, you're, you're talking about um, trying to go after these kids because you're, you want to be successful. And at, at the collegiate level, you are truly based on uh, wins and losses. And, it, you know, if you're not winning, it's what have you done for us lately? Yeah. So um, I, I would have to say just because of the recruiting aspect and trying to get players to, to come play for you and, um, and buy into what you're trying to do and, and just being able to compete at a high level. Is it easier to recruit at the A-10 than it is the ACC, or is that, is that uncomparable? Well, I think, you know, the, the ACC – with being a pit was very difficult to recruit um, because of who you're recruiting against. Um, When you look at the ACC and you look at the Duke and North Carolina and NC state and Florida state and Miami, I mean, you look at um, the footprint of the ACC, you're trying to convince a kid to come play in Pittsburgh, as opposed to going to a warm weather climate schools that have been in the ACC um, Louisville, Notre Dame's the teams that have been to final fours. And, uh, you know, it, it's tough. It's, it's a tough sell to, for, you have to get that kid. And I, and I, we started to do it, um, early on made the NCAA tournament in our second year, but you need those kids that will buy in and believe in what you're doing. And the better you get the you know, the more success you have, then you can land those top recruits. But, um, you know, you have to have time to do that. Um, the, I think the one thing that's hurting a lot of programs right now is the, the, the transfers, yeah. you know, it's it, players are going somewhere. They, they become the star, even like you look at players going from the mid major, um, or not, not teams that aren't winning. They're going there. You're developing them. They're playing major roles. They're your leading scorers. You're the leading rebounders. They're on the all conference teams and you're not winning. So they have the opportunity to say, well, I can do this somewhere else. And they're going on to, they're transferring, sitting a year, prolonging their clock. And then now they, um, 
they, they believe that they can go somewhere and be on a part of a winning program. So, you know, you have to find those special players that are willing to invest the entire four years with you. And, and how do you sell that? Like if, if you're sitting in a living room, what, what is your, uh, it's probably based off of the, each individual athlete, but what's your, your sell as far as trying to get. And I feel like now with social media and everything, recruiting has taken such a different turn than it was even 10, 15 years ago. But what, what is your typical way of, of bringing an athlete in if you were to? Well, I think you just, you know, you sell what you can do for them. The opportunities academically, the opportunities athletically, playing in a great conference, um, you know, what, what your school has to offer. Um, it, it's all encompassing, you know, the whole student athlete experience. Um, but, you know, it, it just, you have to learn, you have to get to know the student athlete and what um, interests they have and it's developing that relationship and, um, you know, my, my thing is, is if they would come play for me, then that they would be treated like a daughter. And the atmosphere that I always tried to create was a family atmosphere. Um, no matter if I was coaching high school, college, WNBA, it's, you know, you're always doing things with your teams and building team chemistry and, you know, you're having your team for dinners and just different things, um, that you do to try to develop that team chemistry and develop those relationships with players. So, um, it's in the recruiting process, you develop that relationship with the player and, um, you need to get, you need to find out what their interests are and, and what their goals are and how you can help them accomplish what they want to accomplish as well. Do you think that student athletes should be compensated in some way? Um, I didn't used to, um, just because, you know, when being, being at the universities, I felt like, you know, when they're only uh, the sports that um, get full scholarships are football, men's and women's basketball and volleyball. So that those are the only, only sports in college that have full academic scholarships for every player. And, you know, with them getting so much, um, other athletes, student, students tend to resent the athletes for all that they are given. And you, you talk about those are the teams that are flying chartered planes and, you know, they're getting a training table and, they're, you know, they're, they have so many benefits as student athletes. But, um, you know, now, you know, and so when you get the cost of attendance, they're getting the full cost of attendance. And then the, the student, other student athletes, um, you know, they're getting potentially a portion of it or they're getting, you know, um, getting some of it. I, I'm not sure what the other sports actually get, but um, you, there tend to be, in my mind, like uh, the student athletes could be resented for all that they are getting. Um, but there, there are, you know, players and that need money and if, whether it's for spending money. So when I was involved in it, it started later as I was in coaching uh, for it because you, these student athletes are putting in all this time. Um, they're studying, they're going to classes, they're um, investing in their sport, they're representing the university. And I, I thought it was a nice little perk that they had um, for the student athletes. Kind of using that to branch into the back into the professional ranks of what remains to be a uh, differential between what men and women are getting uh, professionally in sports. Where do you stand on it? Obviously, women's soccer has been at the forefront of trying to get women more and be paid equally. Where do you stand on it? Obviously, being a, a former uh, Olympic athlete, do you, do you feel like 
there's still so much where we've come far, but there's still so much room to, to grow. Well, I mean, I think you have some, some great athletes who are taking a stand and they're fighting for equality. Um, you know, if I was just to compare the WNBA with the NBA, you know, they're, they're completely different seasons. You know, when you look at the NBA, they are, you know, from September through basically what, June, May, May to June. Yeah. And then you look at the WNBA, their Memorial Day to Labor Day, typically. Um, so they're different seasons. They, they play half the games. Um, I know they're treated well. <laughs> they're taken care of. Um, but, you know, fighting for those things as far as ch- charter flights, I think the w- biggest thing with the WNBA is flying commercial. I mean, you would play you would play a game the night before one night and then you would get up at four in the morning <clears throat> to get on a commercial flight because you played the next day. You had to take the first flight out um, in case that flight was canceled or there were travel problems. I mean, I there was a situation, I think um, Las Vegas, can't, they, they didn't even play in a game because they arrived with tr- poor travel conditions. They arrived like an hour before the game was going to start and Bill Lambert wouldn't put his team through it um, and they didn't play the game. But um, I, I just think when you look at the benefits that the NBA has compared to the WNBA, um, <clears throat> Sue Bird, was I, I, didn't, I didn't know all of the things that they got, but the new collective bargaining agreement, um, just the opportunities that these women are going to have. And you just have the right people right now fighting for, um, I guess, not equality, but more opportunities and, um, you know, better treatment and better pay. And uh, and hopefully that it continues because, I mean, they're competing at, at a high level, just like male athletes are. Really interesting uh, point on the commercial flight thing. I, I experienced that with the trotters as well. And that that creates so many issues that you wouldn't even just getting every bun, everyone's stuff through, uh, you know, checking 25 people's uh, bags and everything through the regular way that you would check in when you have a, a family of four. It's it's sometimes a headache to check in a family of four, let alone a <laughs> team of 20. Right. But, uh, that, that interesting. And, and even interesting in the sense that when we talk about equality, normally at the forefront is the individual pay, like the, the each player's salaries. Whereas you kind of dove a little bit deeper in the sense that like, it's even those perks, those, those things that make things easier on athletes that they don't have to get up at four or five, six o'clock in the morning to, to catch that early flight and then play a game at seven o'clock the next night. So it goes kind of even beyond just salary. Right. Well, you look at the WNBA. These are college athletes, former college athletes that chartered when they were in college. And they're going from that to the WNBA where you're talking about the elite and you're talking about, you know, being a professional that you should have those opportunities and those perks as well. But um, I I think it's something that they've gone to, um, you know, now, but it it definitely wasn't like that um, when I was coaching in the WNBA and as a player as well. I mean, I, I think I understand that this question is loaded. But is there a way to to attract more fans? Because ultimately, that is the reason why, at least that's going to always be ownership's reason why of they're not getting equal pay. You know, the the numbers aren't the same. The the TV ratings aren't the same. That's going to be the argument on the other side. Is there is there a way to to negate that or at least uh, in a way change that in the sense that it, it would it would allow 
at least at least in some way more promotion for for women athletes well i mean if you look at um they went to the summer season because if they had gone during the traditional basketball season they were competing with the nba they were competing with college basketball they were competing with probably the nhl in in a lot of cities so when you look at when they decided to have the WNBA and came up with the whole um, process is the choosing the May to September um, season because they weren't competing with all of those sports. So, um, you know, but then you compete with um, things, families that, that are in the summer, because I think when you look at the dynamics of who the fans are, um, you know, it, the interesting thing, you know, because you look at its families, it's older people, it, you know, it's it's in the you got to get the community in the cities that they have selected to host these WNBA teams. But um, when you ask young girls about the WNBA, their dream is to be in the WNBA. And there are, this is true with college players as well. When they come into college, do they watch the WNBA and do they follow it? And a lot of girls do not. Yeah. They don't know who the players are. They don't know what teams they are, there are. Um, they don't watch it on TV, but their dream is to play in the WNBA. And I find that so interesting. And so, you know, just trying to, th- that was one of the things that I tried to do is just talk to um, players about the WNBA and the players and, and draw interest. And because it's something that I was a part of, I played, I coached, and it is our professional league. And, you know, I just think you just you have to continue to uh, get interest among the younger players. And they're so focused and so busy during the summer on their AAU seasons that they weren't paying attention to the WNBA. Yeah, no question about that. And Susie McConnell, Serio, joining me here on the Matt Fargo show. Uh, Susie, would you go back to coaching at the WNBA or college ranks? Or are you looking to to do that at some point? Um, I mean, I hadn't been actively, um, looking for a job. I think if the right opportunity presented itself, um, I'm not sure what that would look like, but having been on the sideline again and in the gym teaching and working with players, uh, has gotten me motivated. I know the first year I was, um, out of coaching, I needed that year to regroup, to, um, you know, just mentally, physically, get myself back um, to where I needed to be. And so this past year was good for me being back on the court. And, you know, if the right opportunity presented my presented itself, I, I could see myself coaching. If not, I'm, I'm content being my husband's assistant right now. It's because I'm just enjoying what I'm doing. I think that's a great point that you make it just like the, how mentally taxing being a coach, it really any rank high school included in that of, you know, the fans and the parents only see, you know, a third of what the coach is actually doing between practices and film and the things behind the scenes. Uh, do you do you struggle with that as far as did you leave Pitt with a bad taste in your mouth or were you exhausted at that point? Well, I think anytime things end poorly, um, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But um, the break, I think the break was needed for me in, in that year. Um, it didn't end the way I wanted, you know, I'm a competitor. Um, you know, I strive to be successful and I, and I work hard and, um, it just was, it was an unfortunate situation, but, um, 
you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I, Matt, I had, um, in my five years, I had four different ADs. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's very tough to have any continuity with, um, administration. And, you know, when, when new ADs are hired, they like to have their own people and like things that done their way and, um, and have a vision, have a different vision. And obviously, um, that's what happened at Pitt, you know, with all of the changes that were continuing to happen. And so it was just, it was, a, it was a tough last year for me. Um, but I can tell you that uh, I'm doing very well. I'm very happy and uh, I'm content with where I am right now. Hindsight being 2020, knowing what you know now, do you leave Duquesne and go to Pitt? I do because I, I would never have known, um, what it was like to be able to coach at the higher level. Yeah. Um, although I loved um, Greg Amodio. I mean, I, I had, he ended up leaving Duquesne anyway, and it was very difficult for me to leave at that time um, because, you know, I, I loved being there. I loved who I worked with. I loved who I worked for. Um, we were building something very special at Duquesne, and, uh, you know, I just really loved my time there. And then, you know, it was an opportunity that presented itself at Pitt with Steve Peterson. And, um, you know, I, I think things would have been different if he would have stayed on as the AD the entire time I was there. I think my experience would have been different. Um, but I'm thankful for the opportunity he had given me. And um, I, I think I still would make that decision um, just because of the opportunity to coach at a higher level. You uh, graduated from Penn State, coached at Pitt. So I feel like you are highly qualified to answer this question that <laughs> is debated forever. And, you know, a certain football coach does not feel one way. The other feels a different way. Is Pitt-Penn State a rivalry? Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> it was back when I played in, in every sport. It still is um in every sport i mean it's just the an interstate rivalry you know two major universities um i think it always has been i think it always will be so you're confirming it penn state playing pit is not like playing akron no not at all <laughs> not at all i mean it, it people are crazy if they think it's not a rivalry <laughs> it definitely is what, i mean uh, when i was when i was hired at pit um People and I say I went to Penn State. Like you know, obviously they accepted me, and um, people at Penn that were Penn State people couldn't believe that I was working at Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a it's a conversation that's going to continue for for a really long time, I'm sure. Uh, your time at, at Penn State, uh, playing collegiately there, what what was that experience like? And um, you know, you have so many accolades and I listed at the top of the broadcast and I missed a hundred of them as well Is is there one that you're, you're most proud of? You know what, if I, if I had to say um, one thing and, and I don't, and I don't want to sound selfish in this, like, cause this is not because I think it was because I, I was a playmaker is still holding the NCAA um, assist uh, record. I think that that's something because I think that's I the most unselfish, selfish thing anyone's ever yeah, right. said. I mean, <laughs> I mean, but it was a personal, I mean, it was an accomplishment that I, I mean, but I, I was only, I only have that record because of all of the players that I played with and all the teammates that I had um, in the system I was in. So, um, you know, that, that's an individual accomplishment, but it was also because of my teammates 
but I think it's something uh, it's just cool to have that record still. I thought I thought Sabrina Nescu would have um, broken it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what what kind of great timing or, or not so great timing, depending on which side of the card you're on, right? Yeah, of course. But but no, I mean, my time at Penn State was so special um, playing for Rainy Portland, um, just being at Penn State. Just what a great atmosphere we played in rec hall not the bryce jordan center and i mean it was it was packed every night um players that um that i'd become friends with and played on usa teams with and um just over the course of the years that you become friends with have always told me that they hate hated to play at rec hall it was just a tough atmosphere we had a great student section it was the entire length of the um, sideline and it was just it was incredible I mean, the, the community up there, they rally around their teams. Um, every night was was a packed gym. Just It was just, it was incredible. I just, I, I loved it. I wouldn't have traded my experience at Penn State for anything. Susie, I'd love to get your take on this because I think that a lot of people that listen to the podcast or, or don't, because a lot of people that are on the outside are trying to get to to play Division One basketball, to be in the WNBA, to be – uh, an Olympian gold medalist that they just think that they, if they simply just do average that they'll, they'll get there because it's a goal. And if you have a goal, you're going to meet that goal. It was there a defining moment. Was there a moment in your life or career that the odds were against you or someone didn't believe in you or, or something took place where you had to, to kind of go against the grain, go against uh, the waves and, and kind of overcome that. I, I'm obviously people experience that we're experiencing that right now, but, but there was, was there a defining moment for you that you say you look, you can look back on and say, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I am. Well, I think throughout my career, um, you know, only being five, four, uh, you know, I've heard so many times that I was too small. I was too short. Um, and so to me throughout my career, you know, I, I mean, I could, that's something I could not control. I mean, I could control how hard I worked, um, you know, just everything about what I was doing, all my training and what, wanting to play. Um, I never knew when I picked up a basketball when I was 10 years old, I never imagined where basketball would take me. Um, you know, starting out on a boys team at a small Catholic school in the South Hills in Pittsburgh um, and then going on to Seton LaSalle, Penn State. And, you know, and it landed me in the Olympics. But um, one you know, one thing that was devastating to me is um, after I had won a gold medal, I um, just I made a comeback to play in '92, and we were um, I, I had, was married. I had my son. Um, someone had reached out to me saying that you know they wanted wanted me to be a point guard on the team, and you know come back to try to play on the 1992 Olympic team. He was actually the coach of the '92 Olympic team, and so I, you know I decided to make a comeback because to play in the Olympics. It's just unbelievable. Well, I felt like I wasn't hadn't played competitively, so I trained. I d did everything, um, and I went and I tried out for a team prior to the Olympics, the year prior to, and um, went to the train, went to the trials, did everything, and made it to the final fifteen. And the coach looked at me and said, "This is not the Olympic coach. It was a different coach for the Pan Am team the pr year prior." And she said, "Susie, I'm sorry, but you're too small." And was cut from that team. I was an alternate, but never got selected. So I played on a different team that summer, went to England with Tar Vanderveer, had a great trip. We won a gold medal. And then the next year, you know, obviously that was my motivation 
I would hear her, those, those, those words, you're too small, you're too small. And just for that entire year prior to the 92 Olympic team of just training um, even harder to be at the top of my game and uh, make it impossible for them to cut me at those trials. Not really incredible. Uh, it always ends up being typically the things we can't control that try to try to get in our way. Uh, you had uh, an interesting life as far as growing up. Do you know, can you trace something back to how, what, so, what was something in the house that maybe pushed you guys to all chase coaching? I don't know that we necessarily um, thought about chasing coaching. Like my brother, Tom, who's the oldest of us, he's the women's coach at IUP. Um, you know, obviously he got us all interested in basketball and he started it. And then my brother, Tim and, um, you know, Dan Kale was our coach and he's the one who was, he coached every single one of us um, at our small Catholic, we went to Our Lady of Loretto, it was a small Catholic school and, and we didn't have a girls team. So basically I was a little tomboy and went to the practices and watched my brothers play and practice. And he's the one who asked my parents if I could play on the boys team. But so that was just following in my brother's footsteps as far as playing the game. Um, I never thought I would coach. I, I never thought I would. Um, I hated public speaking, being talking in front of people. Um, it was just, it, I was so quiet as a kid. I really never thought I would ever get into coaching until, um, you know, my brothers started to get into coaching, but, um, Fran Mannion was the athletic director at Oakland Catholic. And it was after the 88 Olympics. It was there. They had merged and became, um, from Sacred Heart and, um, St. Paul's Cathedral merged and became Oakland Catholic. And he, after their first year, the coach retired and then he had reached out to me about coaching. And I just felt like it was my way of giving back to the game of basketball because I was so fortunate for all the experiences I've had, the opportunities I've had, and I wanted to help young girls have that experience. And that's the reason I, I basically got into coaching. Um, it's not something that I ever thought I would grow up to do. You guys, uh, you know, I've, seen both of you guys coach both as media member and called a couple of Tim's uh, state championships when uh, TJ was on the team you guys are pretty fiery did that did that spew into the backyard when you guys were playing basketball at, at any part oh my gosh we, well <laughs> when we were younger my older brother Tom and so he's the oldest and I have two sisters and it's Tim then it's me and it's Kathy and we used to play two on two and everything. So it used to be Tom and Kathy and Tim and myself, and it would be two on two basketball. It'd be two on two Nerf football. Uh, it would be wiffle ball. It would be any sport that, I mean, we played in the street, right in front of our house in the street, one of the, the street that we grew up on. We had more park in Brookline, right, right near us. I mean, it was, we had a hoop in our backyard that our father had put up. I mean, anything that we could compete, it was always, uh, Tom and Kathy and Tim and I, and it was, and it was battles. I mean, they did not take it easy on us <laughs> whatsoever. So, I mean, truly I can say that my, my family had made me the player that I was and as well as the person I had become. And, um, and we competed for everything with eight children, you compete for everything in your family. No question about that. <laughs> uh, something I usually end uh, the prod podcast with uh, being a Pittsburgh guy and talking to Pittsburgh people. We know we love our food. So 
if there's a, a, especially at this time, is there a certain place that you're craving right now, your go-to spot, the place that uh, maybe if some people don't know, maybe it's very popular, but where's, where's Susie's go-to spot when she needs something to eat? That's funny. With, with all of this going on, um, we, uh, my husband is a very good cook and he has been cooking a lot, but the, the one place that we have continued to do takeout from is Franco's. Um, Joe, Joe D'Amico it's in McMurray. I, um, I went to school with high school with him. It's just, it was on date, the date night. A lot of times my husband and I would go there by, you know, when it was just the two of us, um, even with friends, but that's one place we've continued to do takeout. And I, I've actually have gotten it for my parents as well because we take turns taking food to them. And that's one of their favorite places as well. That's a great place. Hasn't been mentioned, but, but one that I feel like, you know, I'm a West Hills guy, so I like don't make it all the way out there all the time, but that's a, that's one I got to add to the list. Yeah, it's great. And they have takeout every day. So, and you can do it for families or you can do individual. Got to support those local businesses, especially right now. Susie, thank you so much for taking time out and and joining us. And uh, hopefully uh, you and your family stay safe. And and again, thanks to uh, your children for being essential during this time. Uh, Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Susie, Susie McConnell Serio joins me here on the Matt Fargo Show. Thanks to her. We'll be back to wrap this edition up right after this. All right. Thanks to Susie McConnell Serio for joining me. I, one of my favorite interviews that I've done to this point. Just so much in-depth and and she's obviously coached and played at so many levels. You know, they talk about those who can't play coach. She is not, uh, she goes against that in every way on the success that she had on the floor as a player and then bringing it uh, to, the, to the coaches board on the sidelines uh, as a coach. And I'd like to see her back in the college ranks at the very least. And it would be great to see her back in the WNBA too. But um, I, I hope that, uh, that someone gives her a chance at, at some point and um, it's the right fit. And, you know, the McConnell coaching tree, the fact that, you know, your family tree is alone a coaching tree is just so bizarre. Obviously, what Tom McConnell has done at IUP, what Tim McConnell has done um, at Chartiers Valley, you know, their team. She mentioned this in the uh, the podcast. This is still the podcast, but she mentioned in the interview um, about Tim McConnell still being alive in the PIAA playoffs for Chartiers Valley's girls team. They had won an undefeated state championship last year. They were trying to go for their second straight undefeated um, state championship this year. And uh, obviously that, that got cut short. Um, but Tim's just done a, such a great job. And I feel like that has to be a, a whirlwind for him as far as he was coaching boys basketball and high school boys and then going over and co- coaching the high school girls. And, and the, the result is the same, a state champion uh, with the boys, a state champion uh, with the girls. But uh, shout out to the McConnells, a, a great family. I've, I've enjoyed interviewing and working and um, broadcasting and calling and covering their games uh, for, for the better past of the last decade. They're, they're really fun to do. I appreciate you listening. Um, I wanted to shout out uh, thanks to a couple people that have uh, reached out to me and just said that they've enjoyed the pro- podcast and that they're listening and they're looking forward to the next episodes. I uh, really appreciate that. If you have any ideas or you want to come on the podcast or 
um, want to reach out in any way, really easy to do so at Matt Fargo, F-A-R-A-G-O on Twitter or at who is Matt Fargo on Instagram. Um, really excited to, to kind of dive into this other realm. I think I mentioned it on a different podcast uh, doing it this way as opposed to just, uh, you know, calling the balls and strikes, if you will, of, of play by play. I've had a blast doing it and I appreciate everybody for tuning in. Uh, next week, another great guest uh, covered the Super Bowl, has covered pretty much every big monumentous sporting event that you could think of from the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show to the Daytona 500 of the World Series to the Super Bowl. He's done it all, and he's going to join me on the next edition of the Matt Fargo Show. So until then, thanks so much for listening. Stay safe out there, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.